Now, Satan also has weapons, of which guilt is one of his weapons. He can make you feel pretty miserable, even though you have no reason to feel miserable. <laughs> if you're a child of God, living as you ought to be living, walking with the Lord as you ought to be living, there should be no reason for guilt. Amen? Guilt is a source when we have allowed Satan to lead us astray along the way. But verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now last week we dealt with the topic conviction, and we might ask ourselves, is there a big difference between conviction and guilt? And the answer is yes. Especially when it comes to the source, the source of conviction and the source of guilt. And so this week we tackled the topic of guilt, and I'm sure that many of us have assumed or presumed that conviction and guilt are one and the same, and they're not. They are not the same, and the source of either come from two different sources. Conviction comes from the Lord via the Holy Spirit of God, John chapter 16 and verse 8. If we can just jump back a couple of books there, John chapter 16. We dealt with that last week, John chapter 16. Uh, and verse 8, and again the Bible says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That word reprove is an important word. The word reprove, among its meanings, is that of conviction. And next, that is, guilt connects, a, connects an individual with the crime or the wrong behavior. And we know from Luke chapter 22 and verse 61, you just turn over to the book of Luke, we're going to do a lot of jumping around this morning, not personally and physically, but through the scriptures anyway. We have not gone charismatic. But it says in uh, chapter um, 22 and verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Now, from an outside perspective, what would cause the Lord to turn to Peter and say what he's about to say to Peter? And he says, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, verse 62 is Peter's response of guilt. Um, somehow I've gotten ahead of myself here. I want to get back further. Let me go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. Anyway, the conversation was that Peter had actually warned Christ had already pre-warned Peter that the devil wanted to sift him. And we'll see that from another portion of scripture. But that the devil wanted to sift Peter and Jesus said, I have prayed for you. Now that should have caused Peter to sit up and say, hmm, what does he know that I don't know? Why would he say that? Well, we just read why Jesus said that in verses 61 and 62. So Jesus reproved Peter, which should have convicted Peter of a heart problem for which Peter should have examined his heart. But he did not. He assumed, I'm okay. I'm strong. I can, I can, I can will this and what I will die for you. And I will die with you. I mean, he was adamant. And yet, the cock crowed. By the time it crowed once, Peter had denied him thrice or three times. So to, divine, to define conviction, conviction may be described as seeing the light or coming to the truth and being convicted by that truth. 
This is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit of God to convict and to convince concerning sin, as we read in John 16, 8. His ministry is to bring the light to us, according to John chapter 1. If we can go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was what? And the Word was? And the Word was? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the what? Light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And so when Christ came, he brought light into the world. He being that light. Now, what is the goal of conviction? What is the purpose? Ultimately, it is the process that the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, to mold us and to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. First of all, it brings us to the threshold of salvation. And as we are convicted about our need to receive Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we accept Christ. Does conviction end there? No. When we read through the Word of God and we're reading things, they say, well, you know, that's not a part of my life. I don't have that down yet. And so we come under conviction so that is a process by which the Holy Spirit of God is molding us and shaping us into the end. We're not left to wander. We're not left to meander in our Christian life to somehow get to where it is that God wants us to be, guessing and trying out this and trying out that. But rather it is a, a complete and full yielding and surrender to the Holy Spirit of God who is going to point out things in our lives that need to change. That's called conviction, things that need to be changed because he's bringing a light. Because there are some things that you know today that you did not know the first, day, the first time you got saved, isn't that true? And are you not learning th things on a, on a regular basis? On a, that's Well, we're being convicted uh, about certain truths in the word of God that we're going to make a part of our lives. And so ultimately is a process that the Holy Spirit using the word of God to mold us, to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is his ministry in Romans chapter uh, 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And uh, this verse sheds light on God's goal for the redeemed. And guilt, on the other hand, is a failure to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction because Satan has, as Jesus expressed in Peter, uh, to Peter in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, not 61. And it says, Then the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to sift you, that he may sift you as wheat. Do you think maybe the devil wants to sift you this morning? Do you think that he wants to sift the missionaries? You think he wants to sift the evangelists, the preachers, the teachers, the godly husband, or the godly parents, or the Christian home? He wants to sift it. He wants to ruin it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to ruin it. So this is a, a reproof from Christ that should have moved Peter to sincerely prepare his heart for self-examination for whatever was before him or for what would come upon him. He should have been able to say to himself, the Lord knows something that I do not know. I need to be careful and I need to be cautious. And as you're reading through the scriptures, you cannot pick and choose what you want and what you do not want. If it is there for us to read, it's there for us to heed. It is there to convict us that there are changes that need to take place in our lives so that we can be more conformed to Christ 
as we surrender and we yield. And so guilt leaves out the necessary turning that conviction seeks. Conviction seeks to turn us in the right direction, not the wrong direction. And so turning from our sin, turning towards what God desires, that God requires, while guilt leaves us feeling worthless and hopeless and regretful and helpless, which is Satan's goal for the lost and as well the indifferent believer. How many times have you said as a Christian, I cannot do this? Or I don't think I care for this. Or I do not like this. And I'll be honest with you, the typical professing Christian does not like hard preaching. They want to come, as Paul warned Timothy, they like to come having preachers who will itch and scratch their ears or whatever it is they want to do there. Itching ears. People who, they just want to, they don't want something that is hard, hitting to the heart. They want something that's going to kind of tingle the ears just a little bit. Not too much, just a little bit. And go out saying, I did my duty, I went to church, I heard the preacher preach. And unfortunately, you have enough, enough preachers out there who are willing to preach powder puff sermons for individuals who don't want to make any lifestyle changes in their lives. But listen, one of the things that goes, not only in coming to church, is to lift up and to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. But is it not also to allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict us to bring about certain changes or to remind us of changes that maybe we should be making or that we had plays that we would make but we have not made? And so it is about you and I being challenged in our hearts to bring about certain changes. So Father, guide and direct us today as we look to the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the power of conviction, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Uh, the whole of this verse is addressing those who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ and what he did to make it possible for man to be reconciled back to God. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ who, what? Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit that is yielding to the Holy Spirit's convict, uh, convictions in our lives as the redeemed of the Lord. Now, God has given us the word of God so we can know what he expects. That we can know the direct the direction that our lives should be taken. That's the word walk. The word walk is, a, again, a unique word there. We'll get to in just a moment here. But the word condemnation has to do with our condition prior to salvation. You and I were born condemned. We were going to a Christless eternity. Yeah, but preacher, I didn't do anything. You were conceived and born a sinner. You inherited that sin nature that condemnation, that was a gift from mom and dad to you. Not the one you expected, not the one you wanted, but that's reality. Adam and Eve passed it on to uh, their children, their children to theirs, and all the way up to this particular day and age. We, Peg and I, when we had children, we passed on that sin nature, and we wanted to make sure that our children understood the plan of salvation, that they come to a saving knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful that I believe most of all of our grandchildren have I come to a saving knowledge. I think all of them probably have. Now we're praying for our great-grandchildren that they also come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. So we're just piling on the generations that, that have all, all come to a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But that word condemnation has to do with that which we were already born with. So it's not a matter of whether you lied or you didn't lie or whether you were a disobedient two-year-old or, or a, a terrible five-year-old or a rotten, mean and nasty teenager. Uh, you do those things because you're under condemnation. You already have a sin nature, and those are the fruits of the sin nature. Uh, those aren't the things that send a person to hell. It's the fact that we have rejected Jesus Christ and we have not received him that makes the difference between heaven and hell this morning. 
So the word condemnation has to do with our condition prior to salvation, where Romans 3.23 says, for all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no exceptions. If you ask someone if they've ever sinned, they say, no, I've never sinned. You say, well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. That's not what God sees. And you quote Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone, when conceived, was conceived and born a sinner, heading towards hell. And this should be a convincing reality, reality that God says, I am born a sinner. What hope is there for me, I ask? The good news is that there is hope. Amen? There's hope for everyone. Now, it's not a I hope hope. It's a hope based on the promises of God. That if we do a certain thing because of what he has done, we have hope. So the typical individual assumes that if we have done nothing terrible in their life, that they are therefore in good standing with God. No. Not at all. Even if you never swore in your life, even if you have never lied in your life, you were born a sinner. Lying and stealing and cheating, those are just evidences that we have it. And so those are things that ought not to be named once in the life of a Christian. And so, being alienated from God is not about the deeds of the flesh. It is our state in life from the very beginning of our life. As John clearly writes in John chapter 3, and we look at John 3.17. And it says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now why did he not do that? He didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. It was already in, in a state of condemnation. It's the same thing with you and I. We were in a state of condemnation when we were conceived. Because on and it says, Therefore God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned what? Already. So even before you rejected the gospel, you were already under a state of condemnation. Once having heard the gospel and the gospel been shared and you realize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, then you're no longer under that condemnation. You're now a part of the family of God. And so he, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the, son of, uh, the, the, name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that, do, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest the deeds should be reproved. And so, I'm going to face again. So the typical individual assumes if they have done nothing terrible in their life that they are therefore in good standing and not so. Paul argues in Romans 7.18 For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth what? No good thing. No good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. But then if we were to look at uh, what John clearly states in his first epistle, John 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in me. So there is no individual who can say, I have never sinned. You cannot look back and say, I don't need to be saved, I've never sinned. God says, yes, you have. You have sinned. 
I am coming to you. I am giving to you the gospel. I am giving you the means of salvation, and you are rejecting it because you feel in your heart that you have done no wrong. Well, God says differently. In fact, again in Romans 3, 4, it says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And so, in our flesh, there is nothing redeeming, nothing to be redeemed that would help us to pass from, light, uh, from death to life or from darkness into light. So conviction is never initially a pleasant experience because all of a sudden now this individual feels, I have never done anything wrong, therefore what do I need to be saved for? What do I need to be saved from? Well, how many of you like to be told you just did something wrong? How many of you want to be told that you're not perfect? In spite of the fact you look in the mirror and say, boy, God did a great job. <laughs> Truth of the matter is that the Word of God, as written under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is meant to accomplish what no other source can accomplish. No matter how uncomfortable it may make us feel, and few, if anyone, wants to feel imperfect, or that we have flaws and are in need of redemption, in need to be saved. And yet God says we do. Let man be a liar and God be what? Use the truth. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we say it all so often. At some point it's going to sink into someone who does not know Christ, but for us we're reminded of that great event that happened in history. For by grace are you saved. Everybody comes to the cross on equal footing. I am not better than Steve. Steve is not better than Clark. And Clark not better than Jack. And so on. And we come to the cross. We all come on the same footing and by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. I can't bequeath it to you. I can share it with you. I can tell you the way. I can tell you the truth. But only God can save. Only God can save. So for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. And so, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, when you read it, ought to bring some conviction. Historically, Martin Luther was wrapped up in a Roman Catholic church until he read the book of Ephesians and he read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He became convicted and said, hey, I've been taught wrong all my life. And he said, I'm going to break off from the Roman Catholic church. I'm going to teach people right that we're saved by faith, by God's grace. And so... Jesus plainly responded to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3 when Nicodemus came to him by night. And he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except what? A man be born again. That word again is the unique word. It means literally born from above. So, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, uh, enothen is the Greek word for the word again. And it means born from above. Only God can save. No pope, no priest, no church. I don't care. You name a religion in this world and they cannot save you. They can tell you how to get saved. Many of them don't know how to, how to, get, how, how to tell you how to get saved. But a, but a good independent Bible-believing Baptist church ought to be able to tell you how to get saved. Amen? Amen. Anyone who claims to be a Bible-believing, a redneck, Bible-thumping Baptist should be able to tell someone how to get saved. Amen? Amen? 
I mean, that, that's the very least we could do as a child of God is to, to know the scriptures well enough to be able to tell someone how they can get saved. And so Nicodemus was curious. I think he had a very strong suspicion that Jesus Christ just might be the Messiah. And so he came by night because he was afraid of what others might think or what it might cost him to be caught even talking with the Lord. And so these and more truths are convicting truths meant to convict us that in and of themselves we will never get to heaven unless we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Placing our faith and faith alone in the person of Jesus and his shed blood for our atonement. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 states, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous. The answer is found in Romans 10, 13, if you want to change that status before God. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. You call upon the name of the Lord, because there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby man must be what? No other name. Buddha is not just another name for Christ. Allah is not another name for Christ. You name whatever religion you want to, whatever they worship, is not another is not another name or person of Christ. Christ is who Christ is. He is the Son of God. He is the one, and He is the only one. And whosoever shall call upon Him shall be saved. Now. Here's the power of guilt. That was uh, basically, that was conviction. We read the scriptures. As a child of God, you read to, gl to glean knowledge. In that knowledge, you'll be, you'll be, listen, oh, that's not a part of my life. You were just convicted. And so, as a child of God, you make it a part of your life. You say, if it's in the word of God, and it's relevant to me as an individual in this particular dispensation, then yes. Or you can use examples in the Old Testament, or examples in the New Testament. It said, they came to this point, they made the decision, they made the choice, and through conviction, they made it a part of their lives. And they did so. So we bring us to the power of guilt in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Here's a couple that should have been convicted about what God told them in the Garden of Eden. Thou mayest eat of what? All the fruit of the trees in the Garden of Eden, except for the tree of the, except the tree, the fruit of the tree of the, of the fruit of the tree of the, <laughs> the knowledge of, of good and evil. I'll get it out yet this morning. Um, I'm going to blame my medication. <laughs> but anyway, and he said, because in the day that you do, what's going to happen? Ye shall surely die. Not maybe, not possibility, but ye shall surely die. That should have been a very convicting statement. And... Uh, Adam, I believe he got it, but Eve, she kind of was waffling a little bit there because of the devil. But not knowing how long, uh, well, I'll skip that. Prior to Adam and Eve's disobedience, life in the garden was free of fear, the fear of, of the fear of anything in life. I mean, they could walk about freely in the garden. Uh, do you believe there were dinosaurs back in those days? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was no fear of the dinosaur. I don't know if I say it right, but that's my maniac accent. So, I mean, they had nothing to fear. They didn't have any doors to lock. Check all the windows, make sure they were locked. They didn't have to have security systems. They didn't have to have a police force in the Garden of Eden. All they had was God. And they had the Word of God. 
It's all yours, except for the fruit of this one tree. Leave it alone. That should have been conviction enough for them. But free of the fear of life, free of hopelessness, free of worry, free from fearing God, having a sense of purpose, and so forth. What an idyllic place that would be. What a wonderful place heaven's going to be. It wasn't until Satan, good old Satan, he has to always come in and ruin the day. But he came to the Garden of Eden and said, you know, this can't be. These people can't be so happy and carefree and loving the, the, the Lord God. I've got to do something about this. And so he came and he lied to them. He deceived them. He beguiled them. But they still had the conviction of God because Eve even says in, verse, in chapter 3, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Oh, no, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say they couldn't touch it, just don't eat it. Now, if you're having a problem with something, maybe it's, you know, if you have a tendency towards alcoholism, then don't touch it. If you have a trouble with, with addictions of any sort, don't touch those things that are addicted to you, amen? But the truth of the matter is, you just don't take those kind of things. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, uh, neither touch it, lest ye die. Now he said, ye shall surely die. And so, it wasn't until Satan came along with his, cunning and craft, with his cunning and craftiness, with one goal in mind, and that was to make Adam and Eve's life one of misery, a life of misery, a life of being miserable, and miserable it became. All of a sudden, they experienced fear. And so, they lost their innocence in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband and her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. So, all of a sudden now, they have a new fear, a fear that they never had before. A sense of guilt that they never had before. And Satan was the one who brought it to their midst. And so they lost their innocence in verse 6. They, they, they now know shame in verse 7. And where Adam and Eve typically met with God in the evening, they hid themselves out of fear in verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of, of the garden. If they had just maintained the, their initial conviction about what God had said about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they wouldn't be in this state of misery. They wouldn't be in this state of fear that they were now in. But not only that, but they also lost intimate fellowship with God. And that's what Satan was after. Because Satan knows that when, you, when he can get us to disobey God, then guilt's going to follow and we're going to be miserable. Because we know at some point God's going get, to get a hold of us. 
God's going to have to address it because if we're truly saved, then God is at some particular point going to address it. And so we look at verse 28. Not 28, um, 23 and 24, I'm sorry. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so as we come to the communion table as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are admonished to examine our hearts about the guilt we might be carrying. Now, if there is no guilt, it's because you're obedient and walking in the Spirit. But if there is guilt, that's what you need to take care of. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have it established. It's also back in the book of Matthew. But we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. And we see in verse 28, it says, But let a man what? Examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Am I in a state of disobedience? Am I being compliant with the word of God? And so guilt would remind us that no, we're not. Now, I, I don't have any guilt about smoking because I don't smoke. It's easy, it's easy to carry no guilt about things that are not a part of your life. But those things that you know that are displeasing to the Lord and you've read it in the scriptures or you've heard it from the preachers or the missionaries or, or the evangelists who have come here and you've dismissed it, then you ought to be guilty. Because the devil is the one who, who, who told you, you don't have to believe him. You don't have to listen to him. Or that's not true. Somehow he has got to hold your mind to turn your heart against what God is saying through the Holy Spirit of God and through the word of God. He is the one who is causing that, uh, that's, that, that uh, environment where you're going to be guilt or guilt ridden as a result of that. So God wants to be clear, uh, wants us to be clear and clean up our hearts through personal repentance over sin in our lives so that we are worthy. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says that, it, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Satan wants to keep us locked into indifference where we are uncomfortable, feeling helpless to get back into fellowship with the Lord, feeling the Christian life, and God's expectations are beyond hope. Satan piles on the guilt to make us feel miserable. I don't deserve this and I don't deserve that. Well, you're absolutely right. But I'm also convicted that the word of God says that he's taking care of all of that through the blood of Jesus Christ. So as unworthy as I may be, I don't have to let that be the dogma of my life. The fact that I am now a child of God because I have come to a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ, that now becomes a dogma. I am now a child of the Lord. I'm a part of the family of God. Are you a part of the family of God this morning? I hope so. So the beauty of the communion service, if we have been beaten down by guilt and not knowing what to do, then God uses this time to remind, to remind us during this time that Jesus gave his life in which his body was broken for us. 
that Jesus shed his blood so that our lives can be cleansed from sin. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk. That's, that's uh, the word is a little bit different there, but it means to regulate. Now, I don't know new cars today. They must have some sort of, of a voltage regulator in them. Because not all parts of your automotive, the automobile, I should say, uses the same voltage. But there are certain areas that need a certain regular voltage. Now, the old cars, they used to have a voltage regulator, a little square box with a little cap on it. And uh, if that went haywire, then your car didn't work very well, if it worked at all. So when it says there, who walk, it means to regulate our lives, not according to the flesh, but we regulate our lives according to the Spirit of God. Are you regulating your life? Are you allowing the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to regulate so that your life is a continuous continuity of living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just in church on Sunday morning, but at work, Monday through Friday, or whatever your schedule might be. In your community, in your home. Do your children see that a home is regulated by the Lord Jesus Christ? Not by my anxieties, not my, by my desires or my wants, but what God wants. What do our children see? What are, they, what are we manifesting? So carnal Christianity brings no joy. It brings no peace as God is, is only God is able to provide when we walk in the Spirit. See, our joy comes from walking in the Spirit, regulating our lives, allowing the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God to regulate our walk. Embrace conviction and don't let Satan ruin your day. Don't let Satan ruin your life. Don't let him ruin your marriage or your home by beating you down with guilt. If the husband is walking as God ought to have him to walk, the wife is walking as God would have her to walk, where's the argument? Amen. Where's the beef? Well, it's probably down at Burger King. I don't know. You see, the problem manifests itself in the home when the husband is not or the wife and are both are not regulating their lives according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I can blame my wife and she can blame me until the cows come home. But the problem is really my walk with God. And I'm taking it out on my spouse. Well, she's taking it out on her, on her spouse, which is me. And it's the same thing when it comes, I don't want to go to church. I don't feel like going to church. You know there's a problem there somewhere. And it's because an individual is not regulating his or her life according to the word of God. It's that simple. I mean, it's not complicated. It's not rocket science. So let's stop blaming others because if I'm regulating my, my walk with God, I'll know how to respond to my wife in a very godly fashion. And she will know how, and if I'm the one who's out of sorts, and she will know, and she, her life is regulated by the Lord, she will know how to respond to me. I have, I have that choice. I can just jump on the flesh, and I can scream and yell and carry on. But how is God honored in any of that? Where is the peace and where is the joy? Well, it's when we regulate our lives with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we come together in this communion service today, 
Don't allow Satan to pour guilt and say, you're not worthy of this. You remember what Jesus Christ did for you. And if it's about regulating your life, say, by the grace of God, I'm going to regulate this area of my life. I'm no longer going to let Satan beat me over the head with it, left and right. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together, gathered around your word. And, and Lord, how precious is your word to challenge us. Lord, there's no reason for a believer to really live in the flesh other than ignorance. Lord, the more ignorant we are of the Word of God, the less regulated our lives are going to be by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit of God. And so, Lord, may we see the necessity of being in the Word to studying and to meditating and spending some adequate time to actually learn and glean something from the time we spend with you in the Word. Lord, you know the nature of each and every heart. Lord, you know what we are behind our closed doors. You know what we are in public. You know what we are here in church. And so, Lord, speak to us today in the invitation time. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'd ask you today. First and foremost, always pray for your preacher. You need to uplift him every day. And to lift up one another. Because while you may not be facing any difficulties, others may be. And as it would have it today that there may be something in your life that God has really been convicting you of. And Satan's telling you, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You can't surrender. You can't give. He's going to tell you every lie in the book. And with your mind's eye, you look him straight in the eyeball and said, with my God, I can do all things. Preacher, pray for me in closing. I know there's some things that God wants me to, to deal with. And preacher, would you pray me? Yes. Preacher, would you pray for me today? Yes. I see hands here and hands there. Folks, you know, we can't just let these things slide. And, and we've got to get a hold of the devil. And the only way we can do that is to allow the Holy Spirit's conviction to guide us and to direct us, to regulate our lives, to be lived for God. Well, Father, you know the nation, the need of every heart, maybe salvation, Lord. And I'd ask this morning, if there is one here, this one does not know Christ as his or own personal Lord and Savior, and those at home as well. This would be a great time to accept in the Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the... Oh, preacher, I have done this and I have done that. Listen, stop listening to the lies of the devil. He's going to tell you that you're not worthy. But Jesus Christ went to the cross so that he could make you worthy. So many people have gone to a Christless eternity trying to make themselves worthy. God takes us as we are. And once we accept Jesus Christ, we become a part of the family of God. Stop listening to the lie of the devil and listen to the truth. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, Father, again, we are reminded of how wonderful it is to be in the Word, to hear and to see what you've done all the way down throughout human history. And to this present day, you brought us to this present hour. As we enter into the communion service, continue to speak to us. And Lord, those areas in our lives that, Lord, uh, as, as we have been reading in the scriptures and, and there's been a, uh, a pricking of the heart, a convicting, that, Lord, we would surrender and yield to that pricking of the heart rather than allowing the devil to mislead us and to misguide us and then carry that guilt with us, an absence of joy. 
because we didn't respond. Lord, won't you guide and direct, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Tom, if you could come, and Brother Steve, if you could come. And, uh, AJ, way in the back. Again, we read from the scriptures here in First Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's thing says, What have you not houses 